0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam, or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm joined today by Dr. Chun Wai Lee, a neonatal specialist registrar at Great Ormond Street, who is going to be talking to me about hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or HIE. We will cover the risk factors, clinical features, assessment, and management of this condition, corresponding to several points of the neonatal section of the MRCPCH curriculum. We hope you enjoy listening. So thank you very much, Dr. Lee, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So what would you like people to get out of this podcast? I think just
1: generally an overall understanding of what HIE is and how we manage it, mainly because I think it's important as trainees when we're going to deliveries to be able to anticipate babies that may have undergone a hypoxic ischemic injury. And it's just really important we know how to diagnose these babies because the management of these cases is just so time critical.
0: Okay, fantastic. So yeah, really important just to have at the forefront of your mind. So I guess beginning with the basics, what exactly do we mean by the phrase hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy?
1: So what we mean by that is, or HIE, which is what we generally use is it's a type of specific neonatal encephalopathy. So what I mean by encephalopathy is there's abnormal brain function in a baby. And this can present as a baby with an abnormal level of consciousness, or maybe there's abnormal neurology, like reduced tone or abnormal reflexes or even seizures. And in severe cases, this could even mean babies who need help with breathing and often may need mechanical ventilation. And so in HIE specifically, the hypoxia means there's a lack of oxygen to the brain. The ischemia is lack of blood flow. And so together, this will affect the brain's function, which is where you get your encephalopathy. And there are certain or specific different phases of injury to the brain. So firstly, there's an acute insult where there is reduced cerebral blood flow, and this leads to the reduction in oxygen and glucose delivery to the brain. And so what happens is there's a lack of oxygen in the brain cells, and this leads to anaerobic metabolism and a buildup of lactic acid. And then next, what happens is, it's quite a crucial phase actually, is where there's a sudden rush of oxygenated blood back into the brain. And this can then lead to a sudden cascade of excitatory pathways. And this leads to further inflammation cell death. And it's this phase, which we call the latent phase is just so crucial because this can cause significant injury. And this is where cooling comes in, where it can really make a difference to these babies. And following this, there is a secondary phase that happens afterwards. So this is sort of after, after six or 12 hours where there's further injury, and that leads to further inflammation and cell death, and this is where seizures can occur. So this is sort of what you
0: would expect in HIE. Okay, so the primary injury you can't do very much to alter or modify, but you're attempting to alter the secondary latent phase of injury to improve the outcome. That's right.
1: Yeah. So so that's what we're trying to do is just slow down that process of injury. So hopefully then that acts to protect the brain from further injury and hopefully improve outcomes in these babies.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And when we're referring to HIE, the kind of primary insult that causes the hypoxia and the ischemia, is that always something that happens during birth and delivery for the definition of HIE? Or could it be another type of insult?
1: Yeah, so normally what we expect is an acute event that might happen at the time of delivery. So we talk about these sentinel events. So for example, there could be placental abruption or a uterine rupture or core prolapse, shoulder dystocia. These are things that happen sort of at the time of delivery. And In this case, because that has all happened, you've got this sudden insult to the brain where you've got a sudden lack of reduced cerebral blood flow, so lack of oxygen and causing ischemia as well. There are some cases where actually the injury may have occurred over a slightly longer period of time in utero. And so this might be due to placental abnormalities. So this placenta may be insufficient or it might be small. And that could be because of suboptimal or poor perfusion or poor intrauterine environment and this would also cause reduced perfusion to the brain and also lead to a baby suffering from hypoxia and ischemia as well so that can also occur
0: okay fine so there might not always be like a definite sentinel event but it might be a kind of slightly more chronic process as well
1: that's right that's right
0: okay and how common is hie so, in the UK,
1: it's reported that it can occur in about up to three and a half in a thousand live births. So, if you put this into context, just imagine working in an average DGH in London, say, where there are about 5,000 deliveries a year, you can easily come across at least 15 babies that would be affected with HIV. So, that's a large number of babies. Obviously, in developing countries, as you'd expect, this is much higher and can occur in as high as 26 in 1,000 live births. So this means that HIE is five times more likely to occur.
0: And are there any risk factors for developing HIE other than one of the adverse sentinel events that we've already discussed?
1: Yeah, so normally, as we've said, it's probably a sentinel event, an acute event that has caused sudden reduction in cerebral blood flow. Sometimes you may not know that there's a sentinel event, so you can look at other risks or other factors associated with the delivery. So just anything that would give you a sign of stress to the baby. So maybe there was an abnormal CTG or significant bradycardia. There may have been thick meconium at delivery as well. You might notice that actually the cord was around the neck in baby once baby was born, or maybe there was a history of prolonged labor. So So these are other factors to think about when you're thinking about HIE.
0: And what are the clinical features of HIE? How do babies tend to present and how is it identified? So
1: we've already talked about HIE occurring in babies where there's a sentinel event, like an acute event. So what you would normally see are babies that are born in poor condition. They could be born very floppy, very flat. And they often need aggressive resuscitation. They might even need intubating or CPR. And then what follows on is encephalopathy signs. So encephalopathy, as I said, is a state of abnormal brain function. And you can often characterize these features into mild, moderate, or severe. So in mild HIE babies, for example, these are babies that are quite hyper-alert. So they could be quite active. They're moving around a lot. They can be quite jittery. The tone can be normal, but it can also be quite increased. They have normal reflexes. So a normal suck, a normal morrow. Then if you look at the moderate HIE babies, these babies are quite the opposite. So their features would be they're quite sleepy. They're very lethargic. They're not as active, so they can be quite floppy and be hypotonic. So have reduced tone and they have a weak suck. And their morrow can be incomplete and any babies that develop seizures would be automatically sort of diagnosed as moderate or severe HIE. So leading on to the severe cases. So these are babies that would probably have seizures, but they're also quite comatose and not responsive at all. And they can sometimes have abnormal postures. So very extended limbs sort of a decerebrate posture, they can also be very floppy and flaccid. There's no suck, there's no moral reflexes that you can elicit at all. And the pupils are often fixed and dilated and not reacted to light.
0: Okay. And if you have a baby where you're suspicious of HIE, how do you make a formal diagnosis?
1: Yeah. So I think with everything in medicine, you would normally go through the history. The examination and the investigations. So we've already talked about the history and then a thorough neurological examination. And it's not just the one-off examination, it's always important to keep assessing these babies because this can evolve over time. And then in terms of investigations, it's always important to think about sort of how significant this hypoxic ischemic injury was to the rest of the body. So Firstly, we look at our blood gases and this helps us identify acidosis and gives us a clue about the significance of the hypoxia. So you have a core gas or the baby's first gas within the first 60 minutes of life where the pH is less than seven. So we're talking about very acidotic gas, then that would help us with the diagnosis of HRE, but also with a base deficit as well, a significant one where it's more than 16. Again, this would tell us that there was significant acidosis. If a baby's already showing signs of encephalopathy, so the brain has already been affected by hypoxia, we would also expect the other organs to be affected. So in our investigations, in our bloods, we might see abnormal LFTs, so the liver being affected, and also renal impairment, so you can have a high creatinine as well. These babies, we would also put on a a CFM monitor. So this is cerebral function monitoring, and this is important because it can help us look at the background activity of the brain, but also identify any seizures because sometimes this can be quite subtle in these babies. You can also do a more formal EEG to help us diagnose seizures as well, which can be associated with HIE. And other imaging investigations, for example, like a cranial head scan is quite useful. So we can do ultrasound scans at the cot side. We can look for signs of severe HIE where you might see cerebral edema. And what you'll see in the pictures are the ventricles are quite slit-like. The sulci are very difficult to differentiate. There could be cortical brightness as well. You can also measure the resistance index So this is like a sort of measure of blood flow in the brain and anything abnormal, so less than 0.55 would indicate that there's significant HIE and is associated with a poor outcome. And lastly, MRI is, is an important investigation because you want to find out or see the extent of injury to the brain. So this can be a very important investigation. The timing is really important as well with the MRI. You don't want to do it too early because you might miss the true extent of injury. And so we would normally do MRIs around day five and day seven of life. So if you have a baby who has had HIE from a, an acute event, you might see injury to the basal ganglia and also around the thalamite. And that's because these are the areas of the brain that have high oxygen demand. So they're quite vulnerable to injury. But then in this sort of more chronic type of cases where you've got hypoxia and ischemia that's happened over a period of time, the brain has had a chance to sort of shunt blood flow around and spare those areas. And instead, you might see damage in the cerebral cortex or the watershed areas. So that's sort of the cortical white matter on the MRI.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you. That's a really excellent summary. Are there any other causes of neurological injury in a newborn other than hypoxia and ischemia? that it would be important to exclude?
1: So any other causes of neonatal encephalopathy would be important differentials to consider. So for example, infections can happen in babies, obviously. So sepsis or meningitis can lead to encephalopathy. So that's always important to rule out. There could also be other vascular problems, for example, like neonatal stroke. And that can often present with seizures and an altered state of consciousness and also inborn errors of metabolism can be associated. So it's always important to just think about those differentials.
0: And are there any ways of excluding those differentials based on the kind of clinical features or based on investigations? Are there any kind of really useful indicators point you towards HIE as opposed to say a vascular abnormality like a stroke or an, a metabolic problem, what's useful in narrowing down the differential? So for example, if
1: you're thinking about sepsis, you might see raised inflammatory markers. Also, like I mentioned before, it's important to go through the history. Maybe there was a suspicion of chorioamnionitis. maybe there was maternal pyrexial fever as well, and that would make you think more about infection as a possible cause. In terms of stroke, these babies, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish from HIV, but when you see clinical seizures, a lot of the time with the neonatal stroke patients, these seizures are normally focal because normally it's an isolated or one-sided injury in the brain. So that would help you suspect stroke as a possibility. And metabolic problems you might think about in parents who are consanguineous, for example. Maybe they've had a baby previously who also had a metabolic problem as well. So this is something you can anticipate in this pregnancy. And it's important to do
0: obviously your metabolic screen and all those conditions out. Moving on now to management, what is the optimal management of these babies? Cause I know we spoke about earlier how timely management was really important for outcomes. So cooling is pretty much the standard practice now across
1: the UK in babies where you're suspecting HIV, especially in the, in the moderate to severe babies. And we know from previous trials, so the TOBY trial, the core Cap trial, and the Cochrane review, that therapeutic hypothermia or cooling is neuroprotective. And so it's important to start this within six hours of life because we want to get in there at that latent phase that I mentioned and we want to continue this for 72 hours and our target temperature for these babies is 33.5 and studies have shown actually the rate of death and disability by 18 months has been reduced in these babies and more so for the babies with moderate to severe HIV and the number needed to treat is nine so this is obviously really important therapy Because it's so time critical, and also because we see the most benefit in the babies with moderate or severe HIV, there are certain criteria that we need to think about when we are starting or initiating cooling therapy. So we talk about criteria A and B, and this has been based on the TOBY trials. These are babies obviously that are at least 36 weeks of gestation. So for criteria A, we're looking at levels of acidosis and how much resuscitation we needed to give these babies. So firstly, if there was a baby that had an APGAR score of five or less at 10 minutes of life, or if there's a baby that's needed continued resuscitation at 10 minutes of life, so this would mean also intubating or mask ventilation, then you might fulfill criteria A. There's also other parts to criteria A that you need to consider, and this is the level of acidosis. So if the cord pH or the baby's pH within the first 60 minutes of life is less than seven, or if there's a base deficit of at least 16 or more, then that would form part of criteria A. So just to summarize, you need at least one of those criteria to fulfill Criteria A, so that first part. And then if the baby fits one of those, then you look at criteria B, and this is looking at signs of encephalopathy. So you would need a baby to have an altered state of consciousness. And what we mean by that is a baby that's lethargic or comatose. And then they have to have at least one of the following. So they have to be hypotonic or having seizures or abnormal reflexes, or an absent or weak suck. And so in these babies, you need to start cooling as soon as possible and within the first six hours of life.
0: So this might sound like a really stupid question, but how do you actually cool the babies?
1: Yeah, so there are cooling mattresses or cooling cabs that we use to bring down the core temperature in these babies. And this is normally done in a tertiary neonatal center where obviously staff are trained to do this. It's also very important to continuously monitor their temperature and adjust whatever measurements you need for the mattresses. If the babies are born in a, a DGH where you don't have these machines, or if you don't have the active cooling that's available, then you can passively cool these babies. And what I mean by that is just turning down the incubator temperature or turning off the resuscitator overhead heater. But again, what's really important is just continuously monitoring their temperature because in these babies, once their temperature drops, it can continue to drop unless you control for that and you can anticipate for that.
0: Right. Okay. So you'd be worried about it potentially going too low. And apart from that, are there any other risks or side effects to be aware of with cooling? There are important complications
1: and contraindications just to consider as well in the back of your mind. So we know that cooling can worsen coagulopathy. So it's really important to watch out for this in these babies. But you may not even want to continue cooling if you think actually The HIE or the amount of injury is so severe and there's such significant severe respiratory failure that actually further treatment might be futile. So you might think about not initiating cooling, or you might stop it a bit earlier. Sometimes also babies can get subcutaneous fat necrosis. So what might happen is they develop these sort of firm lumps just under the skin, which can be quite painful. There's also hypercalcemia. So this is something that needs to be watched out for as well. Just don't forget about the parents as well, because you're having to commit to treatment for three days and this is normally done in a tertiary center. So you need to explain to the parents what's going to happen. These babies will need to be transferred out. So there will be this period of separation at times. Obviously, if there was an acute event, one might be sick and may not be able to go see baby. Even if both parents are able to go with the baby, they can't always hold the baby because the baby is having to be called and this is going on for three days. So obviously this will have an effect on bonding and breastfeeding later on. So it's just really important to think about those things as well when you commit to calling.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously calling seems to be the mainstay of treatment. Are there any other strategies or treatments for HIE that are used or that have been found to be effective? So it's always important to consider
1: the other systems as well in managing HIE babies, because obviously they're very sick and poorly. So in terms of ventilation, it's always good to optimize the ventilation. These babies, don't forget they're term babies, they have normal lungs. So we quite easily overventilate them. The CO2s can go down quite easily. And sometimes, even with the metabolic acidosis, they have this respiratory compensation. So they just blow off their CO2. And if you've got low levels of CO2, it's going to have an effect on cerebral perfusion. So it's always important to try to optimize your ventilation. Make sure you just don't overventilate these babies. Then cardiovascularly, these babies are often hypotensive. So you've really got to get on top of blood pressure. A lot of the time they need central access, they'll need inotropic support. If they have a persistently low blood pressure, then obviously you worry about further poor perfusion to the brain and this can lead to further ischemic injury as well. So it's just really important to get on top of that. Some of these babies also have significant pulmonary hypertension and they will often need nitric as well just to get on top of it. So, so it's just optimizing cardiovascular. Don't forget fluids as well. With these babies, they're at risk of cerebral edema. It's always important to restrict the amount of fluids. So we often restrict these babies to only 40 nils per kilo per day in the first day because giving too much fluid would just mean that you can make things worse. Because you're restricting your fluids as well, this can cause hypoglycemia. But also because they've used up to all their energy stores as well, they are already at risk of hypoglycemia. So you often need to have a higher concentration of dextrose to help maintain blood sugar. So this is obviously something, again, you need to optimise and treat. We've already talked about neurology, so calling being neuroprotective. But then we have to monitor and look for seizures in this secondary phase. And obviously, if they do have seizures, so you might see this clinically, you might not if they're heavily sedated. But it's important to look at the CFM monitor. And if you see these seizures, then you would need to treat this. So normally, first line is phenobarbitone, but it's also important to familiarize yourself with what your local guidance is with other treatments. As for emerging therapies, there are potential treatments as adjuncts to cooling. So I think there are studies that have gone on looking at xenon, erythropoietin, and also melatonin as well. So those are important potential Adjunct therapies that people are researching into.
0: Right. Okay. It's actually really interesting because a lot of this is very similar to the management of brain injury in adults as well. Like all your concerns about optimizing ventilation, checking sugars and maintaining maps. It's all the same principles that we learn about for adult brain injury. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense because it's the same principle that you're reducing latent injury. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the prognosis for neonates with HIE?
1: So I think worldwide, it's been reported about 10 to 60% of babies will die from age so that's quite a significant amount. And a quarter will have long-term neurodevelopmental problems. So this is obviously something that has a high impact to babies. But if babies have had treatment and if they have a normal neurological examination by 72 hours or by the time they're discharged, they generally do well. If the CFM shows sleep-wake cycling, so this is something you would see, and it's an indication of normal brain activity. And if there was abnormal activity, but it normalizes by say the first two days of life, then again, this is associated with a good outcome. So these are good things to look for. Babies that do badly are obviously the babies that have had significant severe encephalopathy that still persists after 72 hours. So after cooling, after sedation has worn off, if they're still having an abnormal neurological exam or if they have problems with feeding, then you would worry about these babies. And obviously with these babies, you might see MRI changes as well. So specifically, if there were changes in the basal ganglia and thalamoy, or if there were changes in the posterior limb of the internal capsule, then this is associated with a poor motor and cognitive outcome. Even in the chronic babies, if you see injury to the watershed areas, then you may get babies who then later
0: go on to develop language and cognitive impairment as well. Okay, sure. That's really helpful to know those features to to look out for to help prognosticate. And just finally moving on to our standard quick-fire questions. Are there any classic exam questions that tend to pop up about this topic?
1: I think probably what the calling criteria are comes up a lot, mainly because it's just really important to pick up those cases where we need to start calling immediately. So I think that's obviously something that comes up a lot. But probably other questions like differentials to consider, like I mentioned, thinking about stroke or sepsis or metabolic disorders would probably come up as well.
0: Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend?
1: So there was a BAPM framework that was published a couple of years ago, which is really useful. And it goes on to talk about therapeutic hypothermia in neonatal encephalopathy. So that's something worth reading. Probably also just reading up what your local guidelines are on HIE and calling would help as well, because it obviously depends what resources you have in your hospital. And then you know, for the families, it's important to be able to counsel parents. So there's a lot of useful information on the Bliss website and also on the Peeps HIE website as well.
0: Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? So, firstly, it's always
1: important to consider HIE early on in your term babies, where you've needed to resuscitate them especially after an acute major sensual event. Secondly, just that calling is neuroprotective and it needs to be started as soon as possible within the first six hours of life. And this is just so important because this is where it's most effective and is most effective in those with moderate or severe HIE. And thirdly, don't forget there are other causes of neonatal encephalopathy, So always look out for those especially in babies where they're not typical. So just always think, could this be stroke or could this be sepsis and make sure that you cover for those as well.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today and for giving me this really excellent summary all about HIE. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning@gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.